Hello, friends, and welcome to Into the Word, a radio and online program committed to reading, loving, and living the whole counsel of God. Lord willing, our intention is to go verse by verse and chapter by chapter through the entire Bible. Here to continue that journey is our Bible teacher at Into the Word, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. Hope you have your Bible open in front of you today to Acts chapter 4. Throughout Luke's narrative, the main group of people opposed to the Christian church would be the Sadducees, the small group of ruling priestly families presided over by Annas and Caiaphas. We tend to forget that. We think of the Pharisees as being the major opponents, and they were in the lifetime of Jesus. And then we we think of the Romans as major persecutors, and they were too in the latter years of Paul's life and Peter's life. But for most of this in-between time, the time covered by the book of Acts, it's actually the Sadducees who appear most persistent in their efforts to stifle the witness of the church. The Sadducees viewed the apostles as heretics and rabble-rousers. The Sadducees believed that the Messianic age had begun back in the Maccabean period, so they weren't looking for a Messiah, and they didn't believe in the resurrection of the dead, So they had a major quarrel with the central claim of the Christian faith. They wanted the apostles to shut up, and they wanted them to go away. But of course, they didn't. They preached Christ crucified and raised from the dead, and so they found themselves at odds with the rulers of their day. We pick up the story at verse 1. Hear now the word of the Lord. And as they were speaking to the people... The priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed, because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. They arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. Notice that pattern. Many people heard the word and believed, and then were counted. That's all worth noticing. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ, Romans 10, 17. Sometimes we tend to separate in our minds Bible preaching and personal evangelism. We think that Bible preaching is what Christians need, and then personal evangelism is what our unsaved neighbors need. But that's not what we see in this story. People are saved when they have the Bible read and explained with reference to Christ. That's the biblical pattern. Use the Bible to show that God is holy, people are not, and Jesus is the Savior that we need. That's the word of Christ. It's preaching the Bible such that it lands on Jesus Christ. When you do that, and when the Spirit is at work, people get saved. And then they are counted. They're added to the roles, you might say. The early church added and assimilated people. They didn't just pray with them and send them home. And the Acts of the Apostle, saved people are added to the church. The assumption is always that baby Christians need to be adopted into a family. And I think we need to recapture that in the church today. Verse 5. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander, all of whom were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, 
By what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, If we're being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you all. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Luke intends for us to hear this brilliant defense by Peter as the fulfillment of a promise Jesus made that Luke recorded back in Luke 12, verses 11 to 12. Back in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus said, When they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. This, obviously, is that. This is Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, defending and proclaiming the gospel before synagogues, rulers, and authorities. Thanks be to God. Verse 13. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people, for all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. The Sadducees are amazed here by the boldness and authority of Peter and John, particularly in light of the fact that they were uneducated men. We probably should unpack that a little bit. This verse has been used by some to denigrate any sort of formal education. And I think that's a bridge too far. The Bible tells us to study to show ourselves approved, 2 Timothy 2.15. So we shouldn't be using this verse to argue for some kind of glorified Christian ignorance. John Stott says that the Greek word used here means not that they were illiterate, but that they had received no proper training in rabbinic theology, closed quote. So this is more about the disciples being theological outsiders and not having gone to the right schools. We didn't train these men. Therefore, what could they possibly no. But of course, Luke's readers know that these men have been trained by Jesus. They have a PhD in Christian theology, and more important still, they've been filled with the Holy Spirit. It's on account of those things that they speak with such unusual authority. And of course, doing that gets them into trouble. 
Here we have to speak for a moment about civil disobedience. Should Christians submit to their civil authorities, particularly when those civil authorities are not believers in Jesus Christ? That's a complicated question, and the Bible gives a complicated answer. The answer is yes and no. The yes comes from Romans 13, 1-2, which says, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. Now, of course, that doesn't apply only to Christian governing authorities. When the Apostle Paul wrote that, Nero was Caesar of Rome. It would be difficult to think of a ruler more hostile to Christianity than Nero, and yet Paul says that we are to submit to our governing authorities. He goes on to say that the king does not bear the sword in vain. He has been given extraordinary authority in order to maintain order and to punish evil doers. You get the whole doctrine in Romans 13, 1-7. So, should Christians obey their governmental authorities? Answer, yes. There's our general principle. Obey your civil authorities. And, and whoever resists those authorities, resists God. But this story in Acts 4 gives us our reasonable exception. I, Howard Marshall, puts it this way. The church cannot obey orders to give up its most characteristic activity, witness to the risen Lord, although it must be prepared to pay the price of its refusal to keep quiet, closed quote. So that's what I mean when I say that the answer to this question is complicated. Should you obey your governmental authorities? Yes and no. Yes in just about every conceivable scenario. No if they ask you to stop preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. As Peter said, we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. That we are going to have to keep doing whether Caesar likes it or not. But if Caesar doesn't like it, then we have to be prepared to pay the price. Verse 23. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you appointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Now, it's very interesting to observe how the apostle 
processes the first experience of official persecution. The apostles immediately go to Scripture. They process it through the lens of Psalm 2, which talks about the nations plotting against the Lord and his anointed. But what's interesting is that the plotters in this case were not the nations, they were Jews. More than that, they were the leaders of the Jews. I, Howard Marshall, says again, helpfully here, the inclusion of Israel among the foes of the Messiah marks the beginning of the Christian understanding that insofar as the people of Israel reject the Messiah, they cease to be the Lord's people and can be ranked with unbelieving Gentiles. Now, this isn't replacement theology, the idea that the church replaces Israel. It is simply the understanding that natural branches can be broken off and wild branches can be grafted on. And it is unbelief that moves people, even Jews, and places them among the nations. Jesus is now the dividing line. If you are with Jesus, then you are the Israel of God. If you are opposed to Jesus, then you are of the nations. Jesus is functioning as a sort of division, just as he said that he would. We should also note the eagerness of the apostles for further signs and wonders. They understood these things as aiding them in their gospel witness. It wasn't so much the healings in and of themselves. It was the added emphasis and effectiveness in their preaching that came about as a result. The early church was certainly not addicted to miracles, but they understood that such things could be useful in penetrating the apathy and indifference of men and women to the saving gospel of Jesus Christ. That's an interesting perspective. Notice finally that these people were all believers, and yet the story concludes with these words. When they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Sometimes people are concerned when believers talk about wanting to be filled with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is a person, they say. He is either in you or not in you. Therefore, you can't have more or less of him. Well, to state the obvious, that just isn't how people talk about the Holy Spirit in the Bible. Yes, the Holy Spirit is a person, but it is just as obvious that born-again, spirit-filled, and baptized people wanted more of him, and in response to their prayers, they received more of him. That's what the text just said. These believers, these Christians, were all subsequently filled with the Holy Spirit, with the result that they continued to speak the word of God with boldness. That, too, is worth noticing. The pattern in Acts is that the filling of the Holy Spirit is associated with powerful, bold, effective gospel speech. Sometimes, for reasons that we will speak more about later, that speech is in tongues, other languages. Human, angelic, or other, we'll get to that too. But the emphasis is on empowered speech. When the Holy Spirit comes, people speak the word of God with boldness and great effect. Thanks be to God. Verse 32. Now, the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, 
and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. The gift of the Spirit leads to empowered speech and to deep and meaningful Christian fellowship. That fellowship was characterized by unity of mind and generosity of spirit. Now, sometimes folks will appeal to this passage as if it supports a sort of Christian communism where no one owns any personal property, but that isn't what the text says. It says that when there was a need, people sold stuff and put the money at the disposal of the apostles in order to meet that need. They didn't consider their property to be their own and and yet it was the point is their mental disposition towards the property they can they held it loosely they they considered it at the disposal of any who had need obviously they they owned things if they were selling things as needs arose the point is they were generous in spirit they were compelled to give they were overwhelmed with gratitude and generosity for what god had given to them They cared for each other, and there was not a needy person among them. Just note that, too. We don't want to spend so much time saying what it isn't saying that we don't see what it is saying. It doesn't say they sold other stuff, but it does say that they gave liberally and with great generosity. And it says specifically that this charity was directed towards the needy among them. I think that needs to be said, too. This, this was spontaneous, yes, but it was also strategic. They were trying to build that city on a hill, that compelling alternative, that light to the nations. The effect of generosity is magnified and multiplied when it is focused on the believing community. It, it creates a compelling alternative. Now, that isn't selfish because the doors of this community are always open. We, we want people to see that it is better in here, and they should come in through the door that is Christ. Charity inside the church is evangelism. Luke is making that point again and again over the course of this narrative. Thanks be to God. And thank you for listening to another episode of Into the Word. If you've appreciated the Into the Word ministry, I'd like to personally invite you to pay it forward by supporting one of our preferred mission partners. For the remainder of this year, we are highlighting the church planting ministry Mile One in St. John's, Newfoundland. Newfoundland is classified as an unreached population, with less than 2% of people identifying as evangelicals. Mile One Ministries is committed to helping healthy churches plant other Bible-believing, gospel-preaching churches. Here at End of the Word, I only promote ministries that I have firsthand on-the-ground experience with. Mile One is bearing fruit and is being led and stewarded by people that I know and trust. If you'd like to make a contribution to this important ministry, you can do that by visiting the Into the Word website at intotheword.ca. 
There are giving options there under the Give tab for both Canadian and American listeners. International listeners are welcome to give as well, though their gifts may not qualify for charitable receipts in their nation. Thank you for considering this method of showing your support for the End of the Word program. And may God alone be glorified. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. 